You know, after hearing that scripture reading, I don't know if it's better to say amen or bottoms up or, you know, can you believe this is Jesus's first miracle? (laughs) If you were Jesus, is this the first impression you want to leave with the world? Uh, It seems a little strange, doesn't it? How do we normally picture Jesus? We either picture him in our culture as this all-affirming teddy bear, or we picture him as this blonde-haired, blue-eyed Norwegian stoic, right? Who's, who's morally keeping tabs on people with like this squinty side-shaping, you know, just looking to the side at judging people morally. He's standoffish. He's got a disgusted frown. Well, I wanted to show just a short video that I think captures how many in our culture view Jesus. Let's watch. Hello. Hello. Welcome to the first Christian church meeting. Here are the rules. Rule number one, spend all of your free time in church. Rule number two, you're not allowed to have any fun unless you're laughing at how dumb the devil is. Rule number three, wear t-shirts with my face on it. Rule number four, always smile and act happy. And finally, wear a stylish beard like mine. (laughs) Well, all right. Now it's time for me to tell you all what you've done wrong since I last (laughs) saw you. And don't try and hide because I'm Jesus. I will find you. Let's start with you, Peter. You lied to your mother the other day. Andrew, you said a naughty word when you hit your finger with the hammer. James, you laughed at him when he hit his finger. (laughs) Moving right along, John, you drank too much wine the other night. Not way too much, just enough to make me angry. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I remember when those videos, they went viral when I was in high school, and we would just watch over and over and over. How many times, we laugh at this, but there's so many in our culture, and sometimes we do too, have this viewpoint of Jesus where he's so judgmental, he's so standoffish, and he says it in this kind of pathetic way that just makes you so angry at him, you know? And this is, this is what we find very opposite of Jesus at John chapter 2. We find Jesus at a party. He's turning Aquafina into Malbec. He's turning water into wine because they ran out of their supply, You know, so if anything, if I start stumbling through my words, it's Jesus has done it again. Uh, It's because that turns, that's really terrible. I won't ever say that again. Well, some people, they question, they question whether this miracle was legit. But really, I mean, who would make this up, right? I mean, the creator of the world, he comes down into his creation. And the first thing he does in front of everybody is dabble in viticulture. You know, no, and and then there are those who do believe the miracle, which is maybe most of us in here. And then very many people feel uncomfortable that Jesus is making wine. You know, we want to say, Jesus, what are you doing with that stuff? You know, but there's a reason it's wine. There's a reason that it's lots of wine. And there's a reason that it's lots of really, really good wine. So why does Jesus do this? To answer this question, we actually need to ask another question first. We need to know who is John, and why on earth is he writing this gospel anyway? Well, John, he was one of the disciples, but he wasn't just any one of the disciples. He's one of the apostles, one of the 12 closest around Jesus. And he wasn't just one of the apostles, even. He's named what? The beloved disciple. 
He's a part of this inner ring, one of the few three who knew Jesus most intimately in his ministry here on earth. And John, he wants the world to know the Jesus that he knew so intimately. At the very beginning of his gospel, he writes in John chapter 1, verse 14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son of God from the Father, full of grace and truth. And John says that, that Jesus reveals his glory through these signs. You know, the, these miraculous events that are giving us a window into who Jesus really is. They reveal his glory. These signs, they show up almost everywhere in the first 12 chapters of the book of John. So much so that some people have called these first 12 chapters the book of signs. For example, if you look throughout John in these first 12 chapters, you find first in chapter 2... Jesus changes water into wine. In chapter 4, he heals the royal official son at Capernaum. Chapter 5, he heals a paralytic at Bethesda. Chapter 6, he feeds 5,000 people. Also in chapter 6, he walks on water. In chapter 9, he heals a blind man who has been blind since birth. And in chapter 11, he raises a guy named Lazarus from the dead. John writes at the very end of his book, in chapter 20, verses 30 through 31, he says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. You see, he wants me and he wants you to see what he saw, or rather to see who he saw in his life. And Jesus is turning water into wine is more significant than it just happened to be the first sign. It's more important than than the, the order of importance here. It's actually very significant, and I think one of the most significant signs that Jesus does in his whole ministry. For three reasons. Because it, well actually for one reason, because it answers three questions. One, who is Jesus? Two, what did Jesus come to do? And then three, how does Jesus make it possible? Who is Jesus? What did Jesus come to do? And how does Jesus make it possible? At the base of it, we're going to see that Jesus, when he comes, he offers a new kind of everything. When he shows up on the scene, it's a new kind of party. It's a new kind of wine. It's a new kind of celebration. It's a new kind of joy, a new kind of life. With Jesus, he offers a new kind of everything. And how do we come to that conclusion? Well, let's first walk through the story of a party in the first century. In John chapter 2, we return to Jesus' first week of his public ministry. And his family and all of his disciples are invited into this wedding day crisis. We've all been to good weddings, right? We've probably all been to our fair share of bad weddings. They don't necessarily feel good by the time you leave them. And since Allie, my wife, is a wedding photographer, I see beautiful pictures of weddings, but I also hear horror stories. Um, One of my favorites, actually was more recent, was when the pastor continually forgot the name of the bride in the vows. And so over and over, he kept mispronouncing or saying the wrong name completely, and they had to keep correcting him. And then, halfway through, he says, the the bride and groom have asked me to sing a special arrangement over them, a solo, um, when they'd never asked him to sing this solo. He was an older gentleman, and so he He goes on singing this solo over the bride and groom, and everybody's cringing, and probably halfway through the the aisles, it becomes intelligible what this gentleman is saying. You know, we've had those situations where something that was supposed to be so great 
all of a sudden just goes and dive bombs, right? Well, for this wedding party, we stumble into the epic party foul. They run out of wine. And it was the responsibility of the groom's family to provide enough for everyone who was invited. And for whatever reason, whether they weren't wise enough to plan ahead or they weren't wealthy enough to afford for all of their guests, they ran out. And so Jesus' mom, Mary, she comes to Jesus and she says, Hey, did you know they ran out of wine? Hint, hint. Yeah. Uh, and for whatever reason, Mary assumes that Jesus didn't know about it at this point. But she, she does expect him to do something, right? Now, she might not have been expecting a miracle here because John tells us this is his first sign. Contra the story of the Gnostic Gospels where Jesus as a little boy turns another little boy into a bunch of birds because <laughs> he takes them off. We don't find that ever in Scripture where Jesus is using his, his miracles for vengeance. Um, <laughs> But what John says is this is his very first sign, his very first miracle he performs before people. And so Mary, she probably wasn't expecting a miracle, but she was looking to Jesus for his resourcefulness as the eldest born son. You see, there are plenty of traditions historically that make Mary a widow at this point. Um, It seems plausible that Joseph died when, when Jesus was young. And one theologian highlights that Joseph, he doesn't appear on the scene after the episode in the temple. When Jesus was 12 years of age, and Jesus himself was not only known as the carpenter's son, but as the carpenter. Apparently the family fortunes had, up to this point, depended on Jesus' manual labor. He's the oldest born, and like any widow, Mary had leaned hard on her firstborn. How easy that must have been with a son like him. So like many modern urban families, a single-parent home for quite a while. In single-parent homes, they lean on the eldest in, in to help raise the family and care for the family. But how does Jesus respond to his mother's intel here? With a weird response, right? Verse 4, woman, what does that have to do with me? And we think, what? Jesus, what's going on here? I mean, the Greek isn't easy to translate, and... Depending upon your mood that day, as you read this, it can easily misconstrue Jesus' tone. Woman, you know, I mean, it could be a whole bunch of things <laughs> on how, how you communicate what Jesus is saying. But, the, and although this word woman, it's hard to convey, it's kind of like our southern word ma'am. It has a more genteel nature to it. It's not meant to be harsh. And where we get that is that it, it's interesting, the only other time this word shows up in the Gospel of John is when Jesus is on the cross and he looks down at Mary and John and he says, woman, behold your son. Affectionate. He's not trying to rebuke at any point there, but it's a sign of polite distance rather than demeaning sexism or disrespect. Okay, so we need to get that straight. Even as we read that, it's just hard to navigate what's going on there. But because of how it shows up in John chapter 19, that's where I see this being much more of a ma'am, a polite distance. And a lot of commentators highlight to that as well. Well, then Jesus, he says another strange phrase. My hour has not yet come. My hour hasn't come. What, do you have a different watch than we do, Jesus? What's going on? You see, throughout the book of John, Jesus uses this phrase, hour, frequently pointing to the hour of his death, the purpose of his coming, this great climactic moment in all of time. Here he says, my hour has not come. Later he says, my hour is coming. 
And in John chapter 13, verse 1, Jesus comes to the realization that his hour has come. And he knows with this initial act, turning water into wine, he's starting the clock, counting down to that final hour of the cross. You know, he's, he's talking to his mom here, and what we need to have a clear understanding is that no one has an inside track with Jesus. No one. No one guides his destiny save one, and it's not his mom. It's his father, his heavenly father. And Mary, she'd spent 30 years seeing Jesus as her son, but now is the time for her to recognize and bow to Jesus as God's son. It's a distinct shift happening here. And what's so beautiful about Mary and what has tempted so many around the world throughout centuries to worship her and to pray to her rather than to Jesus is that she does exactly that. She responds in faithfulness in such an exemplary uh, pattern. She responds in faith. Mary, she remembers the dream she had when Jesus was in the womb. She remembers the angels and the shepherds at his birth and all the prophecies told her as we saw in Luke chapter 2 where she hides them away. Do you remember that when we walked through that passage? She ponders them and hides them away. And in faith, she leaves the crisis in Jesus' hands. She trusts that he'll take care of it in his way, in his timing. And so what does she say to the servants? Do whatever he tells you. Do whatever he tells you. Utter submission, utter relinquishing of control. Walking away, she leaves the ball in Jesus' court. And what happens after that can really only be described as a wonderful surprise. Um, Jesus, he has the servants do all these weird things, you know, which as a servant, you're probably wondering what's going on. And we also have to remember that Jesus was kind of the new rabbi on the scene. This is his first week, and they probably thought he was a little kooky. Like, what's this guy up to? He's, he, he's not famous, yes. He, he's more anonymous, and he's kind of like a young entrepreneur where many people are wondering if he's got what it takes to make it at all. And so the servants are like, all right, grab the purification jars, whatever. We'll fill them to the top. What's this guy thinking? So he has the servants do this, and he has them fill them to the brim. And somehow, at some point, it becomes wine because of what Jesus does. We're not given the details on how it happens. And it's not like he had a pocket, you know, a little packet of instant wine that he just sprinkled in there. Because this stuff is amazing. You'd know it's instant, right? <laughs> Normally people... Normally, people wouldn't put out this kind of wine at the beginning. And so he, he, he commands the servants to take this pitcher to the master of the feast. He's kind of like the sommelier of a fine restaurant. He tells you what is the good wine and what is not the good wine. And he knows good wine when he tastes it. And how does he respond? He's blown away. He goes to the, to the bridegroom and he says, are you nuts? I mean, you don't take this kind of wine out at the end. You bring it out at the beginning because everybody's taste buds are fresh. There, there's a good chance they're not tipsy yet. And so they can fully bask in the flavor. But the master of the feast, he goes to the bridegroom and he's amazed. That's what happened. The wine's better than all the other wine they've been drinking this whole party. And now there's a ton of it, 150 gallons of this stuff. So yeah, Jesus is the kind of guy who keeps the party going. <laughs> That's pretty good. That's a great motto to have, right? Now, we all tend to have different perspectives on wine and how it should be involved in the Christian life. But I just want to give us a quick picture from Scripture. For, from Scripture, wine is a gift that can either be abused or enjoyed. 
Um, It's usually a sign of blessing to God's people. Um, Whether it's a part of the offering to God by Abraham to Melchizedek in Genesis, or it's celebrated in the Psalms, a part of the feast that wisdom sets out for the wise in Proverbs. It's a covenantal blessing of those who return to the promised land and the prophets. Yes, there's a lot of cautions. Yes, a lot of warning. For some, it is very wise not to partake in. But over and over, we see wine was a sign of God's favor and celebration of his people. So when Jesus chooses to save a party by making water into wine as his first miracle, we're left asking, what does all this mean? What does all this mean? When the disciples saw the sign, it says they they saw Jesus for who he really was. His glory was manifested and they believed in him. You almost wonder too if the apostle John is sitting there um, in between his writing breaks of the gospel, um, hanging out with Mary, you know, because remember at the cross, Jesus looked down at Mary and said, behold your son and looked at John and said, behold your mother. And they became this new family unit in the absence of Jesus. And you almost wonder if they're sitting there with a glass of wine <laughs> and they're reminiscing on Jesus's first miracle. And Mary's saying, you remember how he surprised us all? You remember how he just shocked everyone? In this party, we find one of Jesus' most important signs. His miracle, it's a bit like a living parable at the very beginning. A story with a deeper meaning that answers our three questions. Who is Jesus? What did Jesus come to do? And how does Jesus make it possible? So we remember that this is Jesus' first week in public ministry. And everyone's hearing rumors of this new rabbi around. And they're asking, who is this Jesus? This is a question we almost ask daily when we come to God's word as he's revealing more about himself and the, the living word, the word who became flesh as John describes, this insatiable desire to understand Jesus. And so I ask you this morning, how did you picture Jesus at this party? Is he frowning in the corner, getting ready to scold his mama? You know, keeping track of how many drinks everyone's had? Hey, you over there, stop laughing so hard. And you, you're having too much fun. You! That joke bordered on being hilarious. Cut it out. You know, I mean, I mean, but we want to reject that kind of Jesus, and we don't want to know him because we feel as soon as we get to know him, he's going to keep us from all these fun things in life, right? But what we see here is when Jesus shows up to the party, it instantly gets better. I mean, this train wreck of a celebration goes from a four to a ten only because he's there. That's the only reason why the party kept going. You see, Jesus, he's kind of like the best party planner ever. Uh, he's, he's the true master of the feast, the true sommelier. And when the wine's brought to the master of the feast at the wedding, he and everyone else, yeah, they're blown away. I mean, imagine the qualities, the, the, the taste, the smell. The creator of the universe just poured you a cup of his homemade wine. Woo! And the man recognizes that something's happening. I mean, a thousand bottles of the finest wine, they don't just pop up out of nowhere. But only a few people actually see what's going on here. Only a few really saw the sign and it opened up their eyes. Look, the master of the feast, he thinks it's the bridegroom. Like, why did you do this, bridegroom? The servants, they actually saw it go down, but it never says they believed. But only the disciples are said to have seen Jesus' glory in the sign and believed. 
The disciples, they saw an invitation to know the life of the party. They saw an invitation to get to know the one who offers life and life abundantly. And when they got their first whiff of Jesus' glory, they only wanted more. To drink deeply of the one who has come to expand our celebration, not shrink it. Jesus, he offers a new kind of everything when he comes. To bring everlasting joy in a life that never ends. And it's because of Jesus Christians have a new kind of joy, a new kind of joy. It's, it's hard to put our finger on how to define real joy, but we know it when we see it, right? We know it when we feel it and see it in others. I'm not saying people who are elated because everything's going well in their life are what I would describe as joyful. Or it's because those who have some of the hardest lives I see have some of the deepest joy. It stems from knowing Jesus, the life of the party. And so I ask you this morning, are you a joyful person? Or are you a Debbie Downer? Kids, uh, do you tend to be a Tigger or an Eeyore, you know? What do the people closest to you say? I'm not saying we never weep because Jesus calls us to weep with those who weep. And I'm not saying we don't lament because in moments of injustice, we cry out with tears and brokenness before our great God. If you wrestle through clinical depression, there are realities with that. But in the midst of even all of these, joy ought to be our norm. And this is why Paul can say, not because he's an optimistic person or a manic, rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say, rejoice. It's because we know and are known by the true life of the party. If your life isn't characterized by joy, you need to ask yourself whether you've truly encountered the master of the feast, Jesus Christ. Some of us in here are wine drinkers, um, but you've used wine as a coping mechanism to escape life rather than a gift to enjoy. Jesus calls us to run to his arms, never to a bottle. So when we drink, we drink differently with Jesus. Some of us in here love a good feast. Maybe that's all of us in here love a good feast. But you've used overeating as a coping mechanism to escape life rather than a gift to enjoy. Here too, we hear Jesus' call to run to his arms, the life of joy, so that we can feast differently with Jesus. Filling our desires with him so that we can enjoy the good gifts of his creation. It's here that we find that we're offered a new kind of joy with a new kind of expression. But lasting joy, it doesn't come in just knowing who Jesus is. We also need to know what he came to do. So I ask you this morning, and this isn't rhetorical. Let's break it up just for a second. What did Jesus come to do? What did Jesus come to do? Don't hesitate, just shout it out. What did Jesus come to do? It's not a trick question. Give his life for ransom. Give his life for ransom. Great. What else? Save the lost, Eliana? To pay for our sins, right? Abundant life. Excellent. What did Jesus come to do? To serve. Very good. To take death, to give life. Excellent. To show us more about God. Very good. And all of these answers are very good, but I would even say there's more. Not to invalidate what was said, but I'd say yes and. With Jesus, there always tends to be more, right? Um, What do you think Jesus is thinking about when he's at this wedding? He's a single rabbi. 
what almost every single person thinks about when they go to a wedding, their own wedding. You know, how, how do we know? We see it in how Jesus responds to Mary. Jesus, son, the wine has run out. And how, what does Jesus say? Ma'am, why does this concern me? It's not my hour yet. This isn't my wedding. Sitting, enjoying the celebration of a new couple, joined together before he begins his long journey to the cross. He's thinking of his great wedding day and his bride, the church. What did Jesus come to do? He came for his bride. And in John chapter 3, verses 29 through 30, so just a chapter later, John the Baptist, a different John than who's writing the gospel here, in response to others asking about who is this Jesus, he says, the one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Speaking of John himself, he's the friend of the bridegroom. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. And in Revelation 19, who is the same, uh, the, the apostle John who wrote the gospel also wrote Revelation, empowered by the Holy Spirit. And in Revelation 19, we're given a glimpse into the day coming when Jesus will be united with his bride, the church. There's going to be a grand feast greater than ever has been before the marriage supper of the Lamb. When all of God's people eat and feast and celebrate the honorable Lord Jesus Christ at the head of the table. But what does this mean? I mean, it kind of sounds weird to say we're married to Jesus, right? That's kind of weird. Anybody outside of Christian circles get freaked out by that statement? You're married to Jesus? Like what? Well, this idea, it captures a grand metaphor of our relationship. A grand metaphor of our relationship to Jesus. It's saying that we're not only, we not only have a new kind of joy, but we also have a new kind of intimacy. A new kind of intimacy. What does it look like to be married to Jesus? Or as the New Testament uses frequently, united with Christ? Well, what does any marriage change? It changes our priorities, our schedules, our ambitions, our dreams, everything. But it's okay, right? It's actually more than okay. It's a delight because you so desperately long to be with the one who is your beloved, to please them, to bring them joy. I remember when Allie and I first got married, we had to learn what it was like to live with one another, and she doesn't know what I'm going to say here. I probably should have ran this by her. Um, (laughs) Yikes. Um, And we both had to give up some quirky habits, you know. Um, Hers was less quirky than mine, nine times out of ten. But I had to learn to make the bed. I just figured, "Ah, I'm going to sleep in that sucker tonight. Why make it, you know? Um, (laughs) I got some amens in the crowd there on that one. Um, and then Allie had to learn to shut off the, I was, I was such a stickler with the water. Turn off the water when you're brushing your teeth and then turn it back on. Well, see, look at this. We as guys, we get so anal about things, don't we? Um, but we learned how to navigate and work with one another. Sort of, I think we're still working on both of those, but, (laughs) but we learned to do them out of joy, don't we? Because we love one another and we want to bring delight to our beloved, to our spouse, And so many times we just assume, like Mary does here, that one, Jesus doesn't just, he doesn't know about our issues. They're so fresh to us. They're a surprise to us, but they're never a surprise to Jesus. And so we think that because they're so fresh, he doesn't know about them. Or 
or they're so small. It seems so trivial. Jesus doesn't care about that. But what we see is that Jesus is already prepared to bring life to a dead party. He saves a wedding day. You know, he, and, and it's, it's these two teenagers who run out of alcohol at their wedding day. And if they did, it was shame upon them, maybe for a couple months or in the community for a little bit longer. But Jesus steps in and helps save a wedding day crisis. God in Christ, he shows up in big ways, even in our little things. If you're single, invite him in to enrich the time you have to further the purposes of the gospel. Don't waste this time. You're not a second-class citizen in the family of God. Please hear that. But you're a part of a family that wants to know and celebrate who you are and who God's made you to be. You're not alone if you don't want to be. Lean into your church, the body of Christ, us, because we're called to embrace you and we're looking forward to it. If you're married, invite Jesus to enrich your marriage. Let him be the center of your love for one another. Let the gospel guide you in forgiveness and humility. He's the hope for true intimacy. Putting anything or anyone else at the center will only breed hypocrisy and secrecy. It's this new kind of intimacy with Jesus, this grace-driven reality, this new wine that transforms every other relationship for the better. And some of you, and even as I was wrestling this, wrestling through this, I was thinking, okay, this is well and good, but we asked the question, how does Jesus make this possible? How can we have a new kind of joy and a new kind of intimacy? And the answer is through the wine of his blood. It's because he drank the cup we couldn't drink. He, his blood became our joy-filled wine. Our curse became his burden that any of this is possible. Here Jesus says, my hour has not yet come. But as we said in John chapter 13, verse 1, the night before his crucifixion, feeling the shadow of the cross, he, says my, he, he realizes my hour has come. In John 2, Jesus, he takes these six stone water jars used for Jewish purification. This wasn't by chance. It wasn't the only thing left in the cupboard. And he turns the water that's within them into wine. It's here Jesus makes it known that a new purification has come. A new way has come. The old is gone. And he's come to offer a new kind of everything. When Moses was sent by God... His first miracle was what? Turning water into blood in the Nile. But when God became flesh in Jesus, he turns water into wine. Moses was instructed to give the law, whereas God in Christ brings grace. The old law focused on external change, whereas Jesus offers grace for internal transformation. And in John chapter 1, verse 17, John makes this explicit when he says, For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth come through Jesus Christ. He's making a distinction. Something new is happening. Something great is about to go down. And Jesus is here. The word became flesh. So we're not only given new gifts, but in Jesus we become new people. Christians have a new kind of wholeness. Our lives are not characterized by rules, but by our relationship. And we talked a little bit about this in Razors on Wednesday night. We're not defined by doing, but by being, and something that can only be done by the bloodshed of Christ on our behalf.
becoming new creatures, experiencing new joy and new intimacy. The Old Testament uses the word tome for wholeness, completeness, fullness. And all this, every bit of this is only available because Jesus is the better jar of purification. Jesus is the better bridegroom. Jesus is the wine we drink deeply. He says later in John, this very, it's meant to be very provocative statement, not to encourage cannibalism. He says, but you cannot be one with me unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood. And we say, whoa, Jesus, what are you talking about? He's not literally saying zombie style, start going to town on his arms. But he's talking about the metaphor that we have to submerge ourselves in him and submit to the crucifixion that he came to do and find our forgiveness and what he has done on our behalf. He's the true and lasting master of the feast. He's come to offer a new kind of everything, y'all. And so we await the great day when the greater party begins, the marriage supper of the Lamb. We hope, we anticipate, we long for our joy to be made complete when we finally celebrate forever with our beloved Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior at the greatest feast of all. Let's pray. Let's pray.